Talk about embracing, uh, embracing the cold. Uh, I was at the men's summit, uh, which is what they call their retreat, um, Friday night, and one of the guys is sleeping outside through the whole thing. Yeah, sleeping outside. So uh, he's, he's, he's got all the right gear. He says, people think I'm cold. He's not cold at all. So, but he's embracing it. I said, you must love winter. He goes, no, I hate it. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he's trying to to change that. Hey, uh, so today's uh, sermon, I just want to let you know right up front, is a PG-rated sermon. Uh, and so, and by that, I mean we're going to get into issues of sexuality, and by that, I mean you're going to have to probably, if you have uh, a kid in here with you, even a teenager with you, you're going to have to have some conversations uh, afterwards uh, as a result of this. And, um, and I hope you do. Uh, I really hope you do, and I'll, I'll explain a little bit where I'd like to see that conversation go. So, uh, also, uh, f- follow with me on this, because I'm going to take a few twists and turns <laughs> that you may think I'm going one direction, and then I'm going to twist all of a sudden in another direction. So just, just hold on. Um, don't walk out uh, partway through this. Okay. So, um, I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, and... Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we are uh, uh, you, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you, and it's on page 969 in those Bibles. So I want to encourage you to turn to that right now. If you're using a smartphone or tablet device, we are using the NIV, the New International Version. And today uh, we're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. So beginning of Matthew chapter five, all the way through the end of Matthew chapter seven we have a chunk of the teaching of Jesus. And the way that Matthew organizes his gospel, there are five of these. This is the first of five, and this one is called, for probably over a thousand years, has been called the Sermon on the Mount. And so we are looking specifically at verses 17 through 30 today, and looking at it from this angle, I wanna wanna learn how to communicate a Christian worldview. And um, I have some special words to parents, that's why I got the, in parentheses, um, to my kids. I want to communicate a Christian worldview to my kids. I had a conversation this week with one of our long, uh, long-time members, a mom, and, um, and she asked this question. I wrote it down soon after she said it, so I don't know if I got it word for word. But she said, as a Christian, I want to learn how to teach, I want to teach my kids a Christian worldview, and um, I need help in that. How do I teach a Christian worldview? She and other parents are asking that a lot of times, especially when their kids start entering middle school age, a little bit before that as well, because they're finding that when they start talking about sexuality issues, when they start talking about LBGTQ issues with their kids, they're oftentimes their kids' eyes kind of roll into the back of their head, not because they're not paying attention, but because they have contempt. And uh, they pretty much are saying, Mom, Dad, you don't know anything. And uh, you're hopelessly behind the times. And these are their, their, their Christian kids. Um, other kids may not roll their heads, uh, eyes in the back of their head or, or react with contempt. Some of them are just saying it's really hard to hold a Christian sexual ethic uh, these days uh, because our friends don't, don't hold to it and the pressure, the pressure is on. And um, the reality is that the combined forces of teen magazines, um, entertainment magazines, TV shows, YouTube channels, movies, books, friends, 
are indoctrinating Christian kids into a sexual ethic that is different than the Christian sexual ethic. And if you think that your kids are safe because they're homeschooled or Christian schooled, uh, you are very, very badly mistaken. The reality is that in our cultural moment, this cultural moment, sexuality is the primary playing field on which worldview issues are shaped and on which a Jesus-centered worldview is accepted or rejected. It's on this issue. It's certainly the case for anyone under 35 by large numbers, percentages. But it is also the case now for people 35 to 95, the majority of people, 35 to 95. If you try to communicate a Christian worldview, which, which primarily is something that we talk about all the time here because it's really the story of God, the story that God tells in his scripture is what the Christian worldview is, you're going to get to sexuality fast, whether you want to or not. And you will have to learn to play on this field or you will fail to communicate. So one of the things that's needed for this conversation is a little bit of historical perspective. And um, I thought the best way to give some historical perspective is to just tell a story because stories are powerful. And it's a story from my own life. It was the late 1970s. I'm home from college, probably my freshman year, maybe my sophomore year. My longtime boyhood friend um, is in the hospital because his boyfriend beat him up really, really badly. Um, so my mom and I go visit him in the hospital and while we're in his room and we're sharing stories and catching up on the last year since we've seen each other, uh, television right behind us, <laughs> or you know, in front of him, behind me, is playing a, an afternoon news show. And the guests, two guests, um, one of them is a gay rights activist and the other one is a person representing a movement that was really big, especially in Florida at that time, called the Save Our Children campaign. I, this is down in Florida. So Save Our Children was a movement started by Anita Bryant. Anita Bryant was a big deal in Florida at the time and she had risen to some fame as a singer, as a beauty queen, um, but especially somehow she had landed to be the spokesperson for Florida citrus growers. And whether you know that or not, uh, orange juice and oranges are a big deal to the Florida economy. So she was a big deal in Florida. In 1977, the Miami-Dade County, um, Miami had passed a law forbidding housing discrimination based on sexual orientation. And Save Our Children was a movement to try to repeal that law. So the stated logic of Save um, of the Save Our Children campaign. This was the stated logic, and please forgive me, I'm just going to tell you what they believed and what they tried to communicate. Please forgive me for what I'm about to say. But they said anyone who's perverted enough and demented enough to want to have sexual relations with someone of the same sex is capable of anything. And we can't entrust our children to them. And what if they move in next door? What if they teach our children? What if they work in organizations that work with our children? Anita Bryant was reported to have referred to gay people as human garbage. I tried to make sure whether that's true or not. It was either her or her organization, Newsweek Magazine, cover story 1977. So this was not just a Florida thing. But as I was watching the debate, 
in my, my good friend's hospital room that day. I can say this for sure. I heard the Save, my children, save Our Children um, campaign representative repeatedly refer to his opponents on the other side as crazies. That was his term. And every time he said it, it profoundly embarrassed me because my friend in that hospital bed knew that that guy and I both profess to follow the same Jesus. And I had been trying for at least at that point 10 years in my life since probably, since I became a Christian right before fourth grade, I had been trying to lead my friend into a relationship with Christ and this guy was making it much, much more difficult. What I was witnessing on TV was the early days of the culture wars. It was a reaction by some Christians and cultural conservatives to the sexual revolution and other secularizing forces that were gaining traction in our culture. If you weren't alive during the 1960s or can't remember that time, um, the sexual revolution was, was framed around free love. It's kind of the term that was used. It didn't start then, but it was what was adopted. And it was intense. I was a kid, but I felt it. So we're living today in what is either an extension of that same sexual revolution or a new sexual revolution that's, that's framed around LBGTQ type of issues and we need a little bit of historical perspective. If you go back to the 1960s during that revolution, uh, uh, many Christians, many churches, and entire denominations, some, some denominations began to adopt the values of the culture's sexual revolution. And those whole churches and actually whole denominations that gave up a historic, orthodox, biblical, Jesus-centered sexual ethic today are currently gone or they're breathing their last breath. And they still don't know what hit them. They still don't know. And I say that from personal experience talking to some of their pastors. They still don't know what hit them. And they still don't realize that it was, true, it was inevitable. Because in the words of Jesus, in the passage that we just looked at the last couple of weeks, they lost their saltiness. Um, because it never, it never ends. You don't give up the sexual ethic of Christianity without eventually it getting to the core theological issues of Christianity and to the authority of God's word. They eventually cease to exist because there's really no compelling reason for them to exist. And current attempts today where that's happening all over again, in my opinion, they're going to end up in the same place. Second little piece of historical um, perspective is that Anita Bryant, Save Our Children, Moral Majority, Moral Crusading Approach failed. Because while the sexual ethics were on basic points the same as Jesus, its attitude and presentation was anti-Christ. It was anti-biblical, anti-gospel-centered. And it was demonstrated by that guy from Save Our Children. If you put what he was saying on that TV up against what Jesus says in the passages we're going to look at today and what Jesus did in his ministry, you realize that there is nothing that they have in common except possibly a position that's behind it. 
The third thing is that incredible, and this is this important to hold on to, an incredible movement of gospel-centered, Jesus-loving Christians took off during that time in the 1960s and beyond. Many of you were impacted by it either directly or indirectly. Your faith was born in it or maybe in a future generation from that, from that movement you were impacted. The 1960s provided, uh, and what happened out of that, provided an incredible opportunity for the gospel because the promises of free sex and other secular utopian promises, and there are a bunch of them, didn't pan out. And in fact, they left a lot of people's lives destroyed. Just a horrible wake of destruction behind them. The current sexual revolution is creating many of the same opportunities for the gospel. We have to remember that. We have to realize that. In fact, if some studies are right, a number of, a growing number, still a minority, but a growing number of young adults are really tired of the ultra-fundamentalist and fascist tactics of the neosexual revolutionaries. Study after study says the majority of people that you go to school with, majority of people that you live around, the majority of people that you work with are actually very open to the gospel. They don't hate you because you're a Christian. The media would give you a different idea, but they don't. They don't hate you because you're a Christian, the majority of people. Ultimately, though, whether a movement is starting again, whether there's opportunity here that will be seized or not, doesn't really, doesn't really matter. What we're called to is to be faithful to Jesus. So I want us to read the text, and then we're going to talk about how to better communicate a Christian worldview that reflects what Jesus is saying here. So we're going to start, we're going to look at three sections. We're going to start with a section that begins in verse 17, but I want to go back to 16 in case you missed the last couple of weeks and aren't familiar with what Jesus says, Jesus starts in verse 13 to say, you, my disciples, in this sermon, you, my disciples, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. We talked about how that means it's, you're going to be different. Your, your values are going to be different. Everything is going to be, there's going to be a lot of differences between you and the people around you. And so look at verse 16. He concludes that by saying, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Live that kind of life. Then verse 17, uh, all the way through really verse 30, at the end of the chapter, or beyond that, uh, all the way to verse 48, he starts a a brand new theme, but it still has salt and light in mind. So he says, do not think, Jesus says to his disciples, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. That's the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. Don't think that we, I came to abolish them. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Um. All right. You want to communicate a Christian worldview to your friends, to your kids to a skeptic, to whoever. You want to communicate a Christian worldview. Um, What I'm going to share with you right now are four things that have to do with the posture in which you do that. I'm not going to really cover the content. 
Um, at the end of your outlines, and if you didn't get one, you get one on the way out, but at the end of the outlines, it says some, some, some next steps that you can take. That is not just a little add-on. That is what I wish we could spend the next six weeks on. But I'm handing it over to you, especially those of you who are parents. So take a look at that. Uh, there's, there's help there for how to communicate that to your kids. The content will be there and the same posture that I'm talking about right now. So um, I, I hope you take seriously, especially those of you who are parents, but really any of you, you can apply what's there to any conversation. I hope you'll, you'll look at that seriously because you can be very well-versed in the story of God and the gospel, but if you can't bring it into today's discussion, especially in this playing field, you're going to fail in communicating a Christian worldview. So, posture. First of all, love people who are far from God. Love people who are far from God. You have to truly and demonstrably, demonstratively love people who don't share your Christian worldview. Parents, specifically to you, your kids know how you feel about people who don't agree with your Christian worldview. They've heard it. Sometimes directly to you, they've heard it in conversations you have with your spouse, with your friends, with your small group. They've heard what it is. And if it's not love, you will lose their hearts. There's a good chance you'll lose their hearts. But it's more than that. Jesus loved people who didn't share his worldview. I mean, it's all over the Gospels. You can't read the Gospels without seeing that Jesus, the primary people he hung out with, were people who didn't believe what he believed about sexuality. And he loved them. And they loved him. They wanted to be with him. As you read the Gospels, it becomes clear what it means when Jesus says in verse 20, very shocking statement, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's a dramatic statement. The scribes and the Pharisees, again, if you're not well-versed in Scripture, that's okay. We, we're good at five oaks, I think. We're pretty good at helping you, you understand what's going on behind the scenes here. And, um, and we want you here. But if you're not well-versed with the scribes and the Pharisees, scribes and the Pharisees were the absolutely most dedicated to God's word of their day. The absolutely most dedicated people to God's word. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee before he began following Christ and became a missionary for Christ. And when he refers back to his dealing with the law, he says, as regards righteousness according to the law, I was blameless. Didn't mean perfection, but it meant pretty close to it. Scribes and Pharisees kept the laws of God really well, and they developed a whole series of oral traditions, oral laws that served as guardrails. What's a guardrail? For example, if the law, the Old Testament law, were to say something like, do not walk off this precipice, the Pharisees would say, don't cross a line 10 feet from the precipice. Because if you don't ever cross the line 10 feet from the precipice, you're not going to cross the precipice. <laughs> and that's what their oral traditions were all about, was to, to help people not even get close to breaking the laws of God. That's why they were so good. Because if they could keep this, and they did, and they supported that, and they lived in community that supported that, they wouldn't even get close to it. They did it well. 
Christians criticize the scribes and the Pharisees for that all the time. It's about every commentary that you'll read, every pastor preaching on this will criticize them for that and will say they were legalistic and they were fundamentalists and, and all of that is partially true, but we seem to be completely unaware of the fact that we do the same thing. What parent doesn't create guardrails? What church, what Christian community doesn't create guardrails? They're a good thing. They're not a bad thing. And Jesus is about to, in what we're about to read, Jesus is about to create some incredible guardrails. I mean, it's not like 10 feet away. It's like 1,000 feet away. It's like infinity away from the line. So it's kind of strange that we criticize the Pharisees for this. Jesus' beef with the scribes and the Pharisees is never the fact that they were scrupulous in keeping the law. Or that they had oral traditions that kept them faithful to the law by giving them guardrails. It's not what his problem was with the Pharisees. When I tell you what his problem was, go back and read the Gospels and you'll see. You'll see it's there everywhere. Jesus' problem was that their rules kept regular people out. Their rules were so strident, so difficult, that, that people who couldn't keep them could not be a part of their fellowship. And so they kept themselves separate from everyone else. A regular working class person could not keep the rules of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were not farmers. They were not people who work with their hands. They were more communicators of information. They were kind of a knowledge class of that day. They could get away with living like that. Regular people couldn't live like that. And Jesus criticizes them for that over and over again. Jesus also had a problem that their rules were too focused on outward actions and not on enough on the heart. But understand this, the Pharisees cared about the heart. There are writings of the Pharisees that have lived on to today. And they talk about the heart all the time. They weren't heartless people. They weren't just like rule keepers. They loved God. They sought to love God. They, that's, that was their goal. They prayed every single day the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Every single day, that's how they started their day. They understood love. They didn't understand it well enough, though. And that's what Jesus' criticism is. And finally, Jesus had a huge problem with the fact that their rules neglected the missional nature of their faith. They were really good at keeping the law, but they weren't good at keeping the purpose of the law. When the law was given in the Old Testament, you can read it over and over and over again. God just constantly says, I'm giving you this law so that the nations will look at you and go, my goodness, what a great God you have. And in seeing what a great God, they will then begin to glorify God. When the Abraham, the first Jew, was called to follow Jesus, he was told, I am to follow God. I am calling you so that you can be a blessing to the whole world. That was basically gone from the teaching of the, of, of the Pharisees, and Jesus calls them out on it over and over and over again. So as a guy representing the Save Our Children, talking on that hospital room TV where I was so embarrassed because I want my friend to come to Christ, but this guy on TV, obviously, by his words, betrayed what was in his heart and what was in his heart. I can just say from his words, betrayed that he wasn't concerned at all about being salt and light. He didn't care at all about people. I mean, the idea of caring about people who are far from God was about as far from his mind and heart as, as the Pharisees. He was the older brother 
in the parable of the prodigals. You know the story of the prodigal son? It's told for the older brothers. Read it in context. It's the older brother after the father embraces and throws a party for the younger brother who comes back after totally disrespecting him. Before he can even confess his sin or, rep- or show his repentance, just the act of walking towards the father, the father completely accepts him. But the older brother doesn't. And the older brother is, the story is told for the Pharisees and, tax- and, the, and, the, and the scribes. He's, the guy on the TV was as far away from God as my friend in the hospital bedroom. If you want to communicate a Christian worldview, you have to love people who are far from God. Secondly, always treat people with dignity as God's image bearers. Always be seeking reconciliation. So we're going to keep reading as Jesus starts getting pretty specific as to what this greater surpassing righteousness looks like. Verse 21, you have heard what was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So he's quoting the Old Testament. He says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which is just an insult, terrible insult, is answerable to the court. If anyone who says, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, I tell you, if you, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go, first go, and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary, who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Do you think that because Jesus says raka and says fool, that that's all he's talking about, so you can call people crazies? (laughs) Of course you don't. So what's wrong with insulting pe- people. Why does Jesus say whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council? What's, what's wrong with using st- strong language in describing people like that? Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. What's wrong is that at the core, when we insult someone, we're demeaning someone who's made in the image of God. It all goes back, it always does in scripture. It all goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. We're made in the image of God. And even if that person doesn't acknowledge God, that person's still made in the image of God. And insults demean that person. But the primary focus of Jesus in this passage is reconciliation. He's all about reconciliation. One commentator says, you realize when Jesus is telling these people this, these are people in Galilee. To go from where they are, where they're hearing this, these disciples hear this sermon, to get to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice. You might bring, it, it, might, be, um, it might be a, a a fruits offering, but it might also be a lamb. He says to get there, it takes three to five days. Three days if you go through Samaria. Most people didn't do that. Five days if you go around Samaria. Five days walking. And Jesus is saying when you get there, if all of a sudden you go, oof, someone has, there's an unresolved conflict. There's a conflict that I have not tried to resolve. 
someone has something against me. Not, not I have someone against someone, something against someone else. Someone has something against me. I know that. I came here knowing that. I didn't try to resolve it. He says, drop the lamb. Travel three to five days back home. Try to resolve it. And then come back. And take up where you left off. Is he exaggerating? To some degree. In the next passage, we'll see that he is very capable of exaggerating to make a point, And it's a typical thing of Jewish rabbis and of Jewish people in that time and beyond Jewish people. Is he exaggerating? You can't always, of course, resolve a conflict, right? And Jesus knows that. Apostle Paul later says, try to make peace as far as you're able to. You can't, you can't resolve every conflict. But does he really believe that you should drop the lamb and take three to five days to get home? I don't know. I don't know if he's being literal there or not. But I, I do know this. He is saying, seeking to reconcile conflict takes priority over a sacrifice for your sins. It takes a priority over that. Do you want to Help someone come understand you want to communicate a Christian worldview. You've got to love people. You've got to treat people with dignity. You need to be known for being a peacemaker, a reconciler. Number three, in your heart and in your language, you need to level the playing field. You need to level the playing field. And that's what Jesus does. He does more than that in the next few verses. There's a lot of questions you're going to have, and, and I'm not going to answer them today. But he levels the playing field. He says, verse 27, You have heard it said you shall not commit adultery, quoting the Old Testament. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. That's, that's hyperbole, okay? We know that for several, many, many reasons. Christians weren't known as one-eyed people. Nobody, nobody did this. None of his disciples, and I guarantee you the disciples lusted. Nobody went around, you know, like, oh, yeah, my right eye is gone. N number two, we don't lust with one eye. Okay? So we know he's making a point in a very, very strong way. But he goes on. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This passage levels the playing field when it comes to sexuality issues. Followers of Jesus, his disciples, aren't any better than non-followers. We're all sinners. Our sexuality is broken. Our sexuality is bent. Every single one of us. According to Jesus. Jesus is putting the Pharisees on notice. He's saying, you guys, you look down on adulterers. You're an adulterer. Go back to the um, Save Our Children movement and their stated premise. If you're demented and perverted enough to have relations with someone of the same sex, you're capable of anything. And we should never entrust our children to you. Well, first of all, LBGTQ doesn't equate with pedophilia. And that's documentable. But there's a more fundamental problem betrayed in that posture of that guy on the TV and of Christians towards 
towards people who don't agree with our sexuality and live in a different, in a different way. It assumes the speaker's sexuality isn't broken, demented, perverted, and bent. Our tone and posture often betrays that we actually don't think our sexuality is deeply broken, demented, perverted, and bent. And Jesus disagrees. Unequivocally. If you read this passage and you gulp, (laughs) then you are actually understanding what he's saying. Yes, you and I have committed adultery in our hearts if we have looked at someone with lust. We're equally guilty before God as someone who follows through and has an adulterous relationship. Remember I told you week one of this series about this literature professor, I think it was week one, uh, literature professor in a major university, teaches in major universities and she has as an assignment to her students, read the Sermon on the Mount, write a paper on it. The majority of students, all the students, none of them that she's come across yet, none of them have read it before. And a lot of them have never even heard of it before. And they read it and all the papers come back and 100% of them hate it. Because they say, this is ridiculous. She says, for the first time, biblical illiteracy has reached, and she's not saying this like in a facetious way, she's, she's saying this real. Biblical illiteracy has reached such an extent that people can actually read Jesus without putting all the qualifiers on and actually hear what he's saying. So, should there be qualifiers on here? I'm not going to go into them, but I do want to say, I just don't want to leave you there completely. Yes. <laughs> yes, there is a difference. There is a difference. And, and, and Jesus demonstrates it, so does the, the law of God, the laws of God. There's a difference between lusting and actually committing physical adultery it it hurts a lot this hurts a lot more people it impacts the apostle says sexual sin impacts our body and by impacting our body it actually impacts our souls because we're not bodies and soul we are soul bodies but before god as a guilty person we're equally guilty and before god what he created us to be, that lust, is broken, demented, twisted, as twisted as anything else. And it's at the core of everything. You know, our brokenness is at the core of everything that's broken in our world. It makes a difference. It's not just something personal that's going on in my eyes and heart and mind. When it comes to sexuality, sexuality issues, maybe you've heard Christians say, and sometimes maybe you've said this, love the sinner and hate the sin. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Preston Sprinkle has a much better take on it from this level playing field. He says, we need to go beyond the cliched love the sinner and hate the sin message and we need to love the, and we need to love the sinner and hate our own sin and invite others to do the same. Do you want to communicate a Christian worldview? You better be someone who loves people who don't agree with you. You better be someone who treats with people with dignity. You better be someone who levels the playing field, who doesn't think they're better than the people who don't hold the Christian worldview. I mean, not just spoken, but in our hearts, humbled by our own brokenness. And number four, 
this is just an extension of the last point, but live as a fellow struggler and sufferer. I just want to be really clear. That's why I have this extra point. Um, and there's really no way to be clearer than with a story. So I want to tell you a story. It only touches on this, but I think it helps. So Sam Alberry um, is a uh, British Christian and pastor. He says he remembers the day he was standing on a street corner. He, it was a pretty big moment in his life, so he remembers it very clearly. He was standing on a street, moment, a street corner waiting for a bus. He's 18 years old. He's in his senior year of high school. When all of a sudden a realization hits him. He says, I realized that moment I was gay. He says, all of a sudden my whole life started flashing, started realizing why it was. It hadn't occurred to him why it was that he would get jealous when his male friends would start dating girls, why he wasn't attracted to girls, why he was in many ways attracted to, the, to guys. And he said his next thought was, hmm, I go to college next year, I'm going to have to explore that a little bit. Three weeks later, he gets invited to a youth group by a Christian, not close friend, Guy he knows at school. And the only reason he decided to go was because he knew he could make fun of them. And he said what he expected was, he expected some like 50, 45-year-old guy dressed like an 18-year-old who grabs a chair, puts the chair down backwards and sits on the chair and goes, I'm going to tell you about my life. That's what he was expecting. And uh, instead it was an 85-year-old guy. And he wasn't pretending to be anything. And what he did was he just very simply presented the story of God, the gospel, what Jesus came to do, how Jesus loved him, how there was forgiveness of sins by putting his faith in Jesus Christ. And he didn't receive Christ that moment, but that week he did. And that was a catalyst. He said all of a sudden he was faced with as he started learning about Christianity, Christianity is a different sexual ethic than what I, the direction I was planning on going <laughs> with my behavior. And so Sam Albury um, is a person who chooses celibacy. He doesn't, he doesn't have sex. As I said, he's a pastor. He's a speaker with Ravi Zacharias' organization. He's an author of all kinds of books. One of them is called Seven Myths of Singleness. Another one is God is... is is God anti-gay? And he says he, he speaks about this a lot. This is what kind of his speaking platform is, not what he preaches about every week, but when he's invited to speak in places, he speaks on it a lot. And when he's done speaking about it, he says he has all kinds of Christians come up to him. And this is, um, I've heard him say it in a talk, but this is what he says in his book, Is God Anti-Gay? He says, ever since I have been open about my own experiences with homosexuality, I, a number of Christians have said something like this. The gospel must be harder for you than it is for me, as though I have given up more than they do. But the fact is that the gospel demands everything of all of us. If someone thinks the gospel has somehow slotted into their life quite easily, without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle or their aspirations, it is quite likely that they have not really started following Jesus at all. 
And then he's careful to add this. And just as the cost is the same for all of us, so too are the blessings. I hope that would be our posture. And as we continue our worship, I hope we do business with God in our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you are a good and beautiful God who offers a good and beautiful life and yet you accept us when we reject your good and beautiful life in. We reject it in our hearts, we reject it in our actions, every single one of us in so many ways, really every single day of our lives. Your grace, though, is sufficient for us. And we thank you that you are patient with us. To call us to journey with you so that we can so that we can be transformed little by little still failing making mistakes still falling short in so many ways but loved by you walking with you growing in intimacy with you Father I pray that we would be that kind of people that we would really understand your grace and that we would live in your grace I pray this in Jesus name Amen